Well, thank you so much, and we do look forward to this afternoon as people are going to be publicly identifying with Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. Well, the church we're going to be looking at, the church in Philippi, publicly identified with the Lord, we're going to ask you to be turning in your Bibles to this book in the New Testament. We've set the stage in prior weeks, talking for a few Sundays in a row about how God opens doors, his open-door policy, and how he, through the gospel message, broke into the continent of Europe. And Philippi was the first outpost on that continent that was receiving the good news of the gospel. So you're turning to the book of Philippians. It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Just think, Gentiles eat pork chops, and you've got it. So you found your way there now, and we are looking at verse 1, down through verse 8, and we're trying to understand what God wants to say through Paul in this incredibly warm and significant book that has really captured the heart of so many people through the years, a favorite of many, many people. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus of Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You sense the warmth of Paul's heart as he writes to them from a jail in the city of Rome. And so here's a man who, despite his circumstances, is still thinking about other people, as should you and me, no matter what you and I are going through, through the course of the week, the challenges we're facing. And for some, it's medical. For some, it's financial, and some, it's highly relational in the home, and so on. No matter what, what I want you to be thinking about is just as Paul, in his, in his incarceration, was faced with some incredible questions regarding his own future. Nonetheless, he's talking, he's thinking, he's expressing feelings about other people, about what they're going through, and how he wants to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly and profoundly to all those who are in desperate need of him. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Our fathers, we're coming before you now. What we are asking is we open up still another book of the Bible that we are very gospel-centered in our approach. We want to be centered upon the work of Jesus Christ, his cross. What's revealed to us about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, in all these services for today, no matter what backgrounds we're coming out of and no matter what challenges we faced, not only this week, but really in the last 24 hours, 
we need to, in a sense, put ourselves in the situation Paul found himself in. He didn't choose these circumstances, but nonetheless, despite his circumstances, he was willing to be a a partner in the gospel of ministering to others in need. So, Father, I pray now that as we open our hearts to you and we open our eyes to what your word says, that you're going to fill our minds with truth and you're going to warm our hearts with the glow of the Holy Spirit. You're going to shape and polish our wills to align themselves with yours. Again, now, Father, we're coming here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an interview that caught my attention several years back where two women whose names were Janice and Sue had begun a business and entered into what was called a business partnership in the legal sense of the word. And they were being interviewed regarding how this business came about, and they spoke freely of their, of their common faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. It was a partnership. The interviewer, who was probably most likely an unbeliever, then asked, well, in this partnership, how, how do you go about establishing who is final say? How do you go about determining the owner? And they smiled. And they looked at one another. And then they looked upward and said, well, God is our owner. We're simply the managers of this partnership. The focal point of these opening verses in the book of Philippians deals with your and my partnership in the gospel. Some translations speak of fellowship or share. It was actually a costly financial word that had to do with, uh, it was a commercial word that had to do with entering into some kind of formal understanding with one another. Paul is saying that it is because of your partnership in verse 5 in the gospel from the first day until now, that he's able to be confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What I'm going to do with you this morning as we begin this new book of the Bible is to look very carefully at what I'm going to call three motivations. Three motivations that a gospel partnership brings to your life, whether it's to your marriage to your singleness, to your business, but certainly to this church, individually and corporately. Three motivations that stand out here regarding what I'm going to call the gospel partnership. And it's this, first of all. The number one, our gospel partnership motivates us to Be mindful of those in partnership with us. And I get that from verse 1 and, of course, verse 2. So we start to break this down, and immediately you and I find that our eyes are arrested by the opening phrase, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. 
Now his birth name would have been Saul. Saul of Tarsus. But he had a dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus where he was out to persecute believers in that vicinity. And he became known as Paul. Now along with Paul is his protege, Timothy. We met Timothy, didn't we, when we were looking at Acts chapter 16 and the way in which God went about opening doors for Paul and Timothy and the physician Luke as well as Silas. You see, God was steering them away from their targeted destination. He closed the door to the region they wanted to enter because he was busy opening the door to the continent of Europe. And of all places, what they are going to be exposed to is this Rome away from Rome colony known as Philippi, named after King Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. And it is here that the gospel makes its way to the European continent. And Timothy is now having to ponder how just as God stopped Saul of Tarsus on the road to persecution and called him, renamed him Paul, so now likewise, here's Timothy, and God is opening doors for Timothy. Why, in Acts chapter 16, you and I are told that there was a disciple named Timothy who lived and whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek, The mothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, and Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. So now here's Paul, and he's mentoring this young man. And there's something very powerful about a relationship where one is spiritually investing himself or herself in another individual for God's glory. It's a gospel partnership. But would you look at, furthermore, the way in which Paul goes about describing himself? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. He doesn't pull out his resume. He doesn't list at the very onset all that he's achieved evangelistically and educationally and calls himself a servant. A bondservant, according to the Greek. Why, it gets its bearing from the Old Testament when an individual who wanted to remain in allegiance to his owner, even though he had been given the opportunity for freedom, would stand next to a door and an AWL, an awl, would be used and a little hole would be punched into the ear, marking him forever as a bondservant of that owner. Typically, the individual then became manager of the estate that the owner oversaw. This is the word picture now that Paul is utilizing. He's not describing himself in powerful, professional, educational terms. No, there's a sense of humility that he's bringing to the partnership of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul and Timothy, servants, literally bond servants of Christ Jesus. Now, when you and I seek to be part of the partnership of the gospel, we become mindful of the people who've gone before us and had high impact for God's glory. But we've got something in common. 
We've been mocked by ownership. We're not the owners. God is. We manage the partnership God owns. Now what fascinates us as to what comes next is that he no longer uses other people's names. It's almost as if there's an anonymous crowd known perhaps to the people in Philippi. So he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. To all the saints. It doesn't say to all the saints at Philippi. It says to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And a saint means literally somebody who is set apart by God. Years ago, when my family lived in the greater Pittsburgh area of Pennsylvania, we had a radio station that I would do Monday teachings on in the evening hour. Mark Elfstrand was part of that. He's now with the Salem Broadcasting Network nationwide. And Mark and I used to sit in the studio, and we'd talk back and forth between breaks. And I got a phone call in one of the interviews that took place on that Monday evening from a nun representing other nuns in the greater western Ohio region. And evidently, these nuns listened in on the program. And they liked a lot of what I said until I would get to things like justification by faith alone. Then they would take issue with me, of course. And I would just simply continue to explain the Bible to them. Well, we got off the phone, and Mark told me that one of the nuns had been talking offline about the fact that they were all excited about the fact that the Pope had just established somebody new who was somebody close to their heart who would be recognized as a saint. And so I had to weave this into my teaching. And so I, I, at a certain point, as I was speaking on various biblical te- subjects, I said, you know, there's a story about the time in which Dr. Ironside of the Moody Church used to travel many miles by train. And on one of these trips, he took a four-day ride from the west coast to his home in Chicago, he found himself seated among a group of nuns. And they liked him because he's a humble man, was a humble man and well-read, and he was an expositor of God's Word. So he began to ask them some questions until finally he asked the nuns if any of them had ever seen a saint before. They all said they'd never seen one, so he asked them if they'd like to see one. They all said yes, and so he leaned forward and smiled and looked at them and said, Hi, I'm St. Harry, and how are you? You see, when it comes to the matter of the saint, he's speaking to those who are alive here, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. The saint is not someone who has passed away and is now recognized by the church. The saint is someone who is alive and has been set apart by God. And so he's simply saying those who are in Christ Jesus have been set apart and they are saints. But notice it says saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, not merely saints at Philippi. In other words, what he's now telling us in this partnership of the gospel is that when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you are united with Jesus Christ. In Christ carries with it the idea of your union in Christ. 
And out of that union comes our communion with all those who are in Christ, you see. And this takes place at your Philippi. So now, what you and I have to say is, God has set me apart with other believers in Christ Jesus at whatever neighborhood address he's given you. And you become mindful of all those who are, who are partners with you in the work of Christ Jesus for his glory. Captures my attention is that he's not naming names. There's some anonymity here, isn't there? Speaks of the founders and speaks of saints. But then he goes on to say here, together with the overseers and the deacons. The overseer word carries with it the idea from the Greek of episkopos. You get the denomination episcopalian from it. It means literally to oversee. Deacons are those who come alongside and assist. So whether it's those who are over or those who are with, what we find here now is that there's a collectiveness within the partnership that God has established. And you and I need to be mindful of these people. So I say to myself, aha. I need to be mindful of that nursery worker at 6 o'clock on a Sunday night who's willing to go back there so that people can gather together for further worship. I want to be mindful of that individual who gets up early and is there at the tech booth for first service, let's say it's 7 something in the morning, checking out things, making sure that all is okay prior to the start of that first service. I want to be mindful. It's my partner in the gospel, you see. I want to be mindful of that substitute in the, in the nursery department who stepped in, doesn't know what she got herself into, because the one who's the regular is sick today. I want to be mindful. Now what you and I do then is that we begin to develop this sense of the doulos, the servant mentality. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints, the set-apart ones, in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. And we say, okay, what God is saying here is that he wants me to be mindful of the workers. Don McCullough, in his book, Waking from the American Dream, writes, During World War II, England needed to increase its production of coal, to be able to achieve success in the midst of the war. So Winston Churchill called together labor leaders to enlist their support. At the end of his presentation, he asked them to picture a parade that would be taking place after the war in Piccadilly Circle. He said first would come the sailors who kept the vital sea lanes open during the war. Then would come the soldiers who had come home from Dunkirk and then gone out to defeat Rommel and his forces in Africa under Hitler's leadership. Then would come the pilots who had driven the Luftwaffe from the sky. But last of all, he said, would come a long line of sweat-stained, soot-streaked men in miners' caps. 
someone would cry from the crowd, and where were you during the critical days of the war? How would they answer? Churchill prepped them. From 10,000 throats would come the answer, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. Serving where nobody else could see. You're making a note to become mindful of those who serve where others don't go looking. Mindful of those who serve who have to give of their effort and their preparations during the week to make things happen. Mindful. Once we become mindful of the workers God provides in verse 1, then we're ready to embrace being mindful of the work that God provides in verse 2. When he goes on to say this, grace and peace to you. From the government? No. From the military? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace was the Greek word. Peace was the Hebrew word. Now what Paul is doing is that he wants to create a sense of unity among the people. Some of you are Gentiles, some of you are Jews. The Gentiles are going to embrace the idea of the word grace. But that carries with the idea of God's unmerited favor, getting what we don't deserve, which is salvation, through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We become partners, you see, in this gospel. Peace. Carries with the idea of wholeness, not partialness, completeness of well-being. But what fascinates us is the sequence It doesn't say peace and grace. It says grace and peace. Peace is the result of grace. Grace precedes peace. So out of God's gracious work in your heart, your mind, your soul, The result is this sense of overwhelming peace that even though the externals of life may be working against you, when the external pressure is applied against you, the internal person is residing for you, reigning over you. There will always be a clash between the external pressure you experience and the internal person who reigns. But if you get the sequence right for your life, grace precedes peace, then you're better able to even pray for that unbeliever who you might need to simply begin praying in terms of God, give him or her no peace until they first experience true grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Don't let them buy into an artificial substitute for peace. And then assume they've got God's favor. Grace precedes peace. Now when a church is able to get the sequence right, 
It's because we've embraced the biblical partnership principle of the gospel. And so number one, our gospel partnership motivates us to be mindful of those in partnership with us. Paul and Timothy's saints, overseers, deacons, the workers of God, then grace and peace. Not peace, then grace. The work of God. Once we have laid this down as our foundation, we're ready for our second motivator. And it's this flowing out of verses 3 through 6. The number two, our gospel partnership motivates us to be thankful for the partnership God has given us. Now, there will be three reasons that emerge in verses 3 through 6 that will not appear on the screen that will draw out from these verses as to why God calls people who are in gospel partnership to be thankful. First of all, notice this in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. Camp on that one. The first reason is the memories that God produces. Faithful memories of one another. So now Paul looks back at that initial encounter when Lydia came to saving faith. We read about it in Acts 16. It was not uh, an accident. It was an appointment. Then he considers that spiritual oppression that was such a dark cloud over that slave girl and how he spoke truth. And the result was that young lady was liberated from the chains that had held her in bondage. And he's, he's having to grapple with this in his imprisonment. She's free and he's incarcerated. She was freed spiritually, but he is incarcerated physically. Yet he is still capable of giving thanks. If you're going to pray for someone, make sure you're not carrying a bitter spirit. Make sure that your heart is governed by a thankful spirit. He thinks of that Philippian jailer and he moves from the initial encounter of evangelism with Lydia through the spiritual oppression that needed to be relieved in the experience of the slave girl to what I would call that transformational moment when God opened not merely the door for Paul, but the prison door. And the jailer said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And now Paul has this incredible sense of thankfulness with regard to the memories of the people that he is that he has been involved with. Do you give thanks? Do you communicate thanks? I believe that one of the wisest things we can do, keep a stack of thank you cards handy, keep draining them, send out a thanks to that sound tech, send out a thank you to that nursery, Send out a thank you note to that Bible study leader. Send out a thank you to that person who's behind the scenes making things happen. Those kind of things. Do 
several years back when I had to take on the additional challenge of being interim superintendent for the Forest Lakes District of the Evangelical Free Church. And Pastor Mark Steele would sit by my side and we'd work in tandem with that board. It's how we got to know one another. I would get called out into various churches to have to manage and guide them through conflict resolution. And I recall one particular case where there were several leaders who were just simply at odds with one another. So I sat there with them, and I opened up God's Word, and I read verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you, and I asked them the question, before you entered into a period of being highly critical of people in your church, had you sent them thank you notes? Had you cultivated a climate of thankfulness? Or had you just simply descended into a spirit of bitterness? Were you prone to talk about others? Or did you develop the spiritually mature discipline of expressing thanks to others? Because you see, thankfulness is the foundation And thankfulness is the platform upon which then constructive criticism can be provided. But if there is not a climate, a culture of thankfulness, words will never be viewed as constructive, but rather destructive in the realm of criticism. I look them in the eye. They look away. We know the answer. What Paul is doing here in this gospel partnership is that he is cultivating the right spiritual climate. He's a leader, setting the pace. Thank my God, every time I remember you, Lydia. Every time I remember you, and we don't even know the name of that woman who was a slave girl. Every time I think of you, Philippian jailer, as Paul is incarcerated, you see what he's done is that he has brought thankfulness in the midst of circumstances where everybody else would have assumed bitterness. Well, he was more free in his incarceration than most people were walking the streets of Rome, liberated. Have you found that sense of thankfulness in the midst of your own confining circumstances? It's a way of being set free. Notice with me here that not only does he emphasize, I thank my God, he says, I thank my God every time, not sometimes, every time I think of you. Dr. 
W.J. Steiger recounts a time where he decided at the end of a calendar year he would send a, a thank you note to a, a woman who years previous had been a teacher of his. He did it. Here was her response. Dear Willie, I'm an elderly lady now in my late 70s. I'm ill and I cannot leave my room. Your letter came like a ray of bright sun, illuminating my dark day and my even darker life. You'll be interested in knowing that after 50 years of teaching, yours was the first letter of thanks I ever received from a former student. You lifted the clouds for me. And there's Paul in confinement lifting the clouds. You doing that? Now there's a partnership. There's a fellowship. There's a second reason that you and I see here for this thankfulness. Not only the memories in verse 3, But in verses 4 and 5, he goes on to say this. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The second reason is joyful prayer. He is not allowing the externals to rob him of what God has done with the internals. He's able to distinguish between joy and happiness, or as someone once put it. You see, happiness depends upon your happenings. And if your happenings don't happen to happen the way you happen to want your happenings to happen, you won't happen to have happiness, you see. Are you a person of the externals or a person of the internals? Do the externals govern the internals or do the internals govern the externals? Does the pressure from the outside reshape your view of the person on the inside? Or does the person of Jesus Christ who reigns on the inside then shapes the way you approach the pressures from the outside? This man's got a joyful spirit in his own captivity. And he's not bemoaning himself, he's praying with joy for others. So in all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership. It's part of what we call the koinon word group, koinonia, fellowship, partnership, and so forth. It's a critically important word that you see there in verse 5. It's the focal point, you see, of, of these verses. Because in the first century, the word carried with it the idea of commercial overtones. If, if you wanted to go and buy a boat with another man and say it's you and St. Harry, what do you do? You enter into a partnership. It's a self-sacrificing idea. It carries with it the idea of people with sleeves rolled up. You see, what they understand when you use buzzwords like fellowship or community and so on, you better attach the idea of gospel to them. 
to make this understandable as something that is God-centered. Not self-centered. That's why he calls this the partnership of the gospel. The gospel partnership. So he's challenging you and me here now to make sure that gospel is central to partnership. And the way we go about approaching this, and we do it, not only then with quality memories of what people are doing in our midst, but furthermore, a joyful prayer life, interceding while we're praying for God to be intervening. But now there's a third, if you will, and it's found here in verse 6, where he goes on to say, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, not for you, not around you, in you, the starting point, he's saying, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So the first reason for thankfulness is the memories of the partnership of the body of Christ. The second is the joyful prayers that you offer to God for individuals in the body of Christ. And the third is the awareness of the continuing work of God in individuals throughout the body of Christ. He's not wondering. He's certain. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So now this then assumes God's preserving work. And God preserves His people so that His people persevere before their God. This is the argument again of eternal security. And verse 6 is describing what the real Christian is all about. This is no superficial profession of faith. You know, at the end of John 2, Many people, you and I are told, believed in Jesus' name when they saw the miraculous signs he was doing, but, quote, Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Unquote. John 2, verse 24. He knew what was inside of them. A few chapters later, speaking to those who had professed faith, Jesus declared, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. John 8, 31. In Mark chapter 4, verse 16 down to verse 17, telling the the parable of the sower, he depicts some who, quote, hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. You see, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Not so here. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So now you are creating a sense relationally of gospel partnership. A strong, sturdy, biblical phrase to describe the relationships people have within a congregation. He brings it to completion, you see. Thomas Nast was a great artist. 
He was standing before a large group of people, and he took a canvas about six feet long, two feet wide, placed it nearly horizontally on an easel before the audience, and began to create a landscape before them. Meadows and fields, farmhouse, orchard, bright sky, clouds, white clouds, and so on. It seemed like the light of heaven was just being poured out upon the scene. Finally, he sighed. He took a step back. The people just began to applaud. They thought it was an incredible scene that he had just created. When the applause subsided, he stepped back to the canvas as if it was not quite done yet. And then taking darker colors, he applied them most, what seemed like recklessly, to the canvas. Out with the bright sky. You ever see a picture like this, he posed? Out went the meadows, the fields, the orchards, the buildings. Up and down he went till the landscape was just simply totally obliterated. Nothing but this dub. Look. And then he stepped back. He smiled. Looked at it. Said it's done. Nobody applauded. But then he ordered the stage attendants to come out, put a frame around what seemed to be a ruined work of art, turned it on its vertical position, and then light was shown directly upon the canvas. Before the audience, there stood a panel of this incredible waterfall. Water plunging over dark rock, skirted with trees and the likes. The entire audience stood up and applauded in amazement. He took something horizontal, went vertical on them. And as he did so, he took something which seemingly appeared to be destroyed and allowed them to see what the finished work was really all about. Now, it could be right now your externals are overwhelming your internals. And you're part of the partnership of the gospel. And it could very well be that as you're struggling to try to understand why such darkness in the midst of this season of life you've been placed in, you can't make head or tails out of what God's doing. But in this gospel partnership, You take the horizontal and you shift vertically and get a God-centered perspective on this partnership and you're mindful of His workers as well as work. And then you are thankful for this partnership based upon the memories of what God's grace has done in verse 3, upon the joyful prayer you're presenting to God in verses 4 and 5, and the completed work that God has secured, even though you can't see it yet, And you know and I know, out of the darkness of the canvas of your life is going to come something incredibly beautiful. Because you're a partner in the gospel of grace, you see. He's just not done yet.
But he will be. He will be. Turning your canvas vertical. If so, you're ready for this third motivation that comes out of verse 7 and verse 8. Paul, in his imprisonment, sighs as he thinks about the open door that he had to get into Philippi. Now he's got this closed-door experience in Rome, and yet, incredibly enough, there's just this heartbeat for people. It's right for me, he says, to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart. Brilliant Paul. We think of him as so cerebral. He's revealing his heart here. But he's also revealing his conditions here. For you see, whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. There's grace again. You see the word share? I've circled it because it comes out of the same word group as the word partnership in verse 5. The koinon group. Koinos. Fellowship. Partnership. Share. You see, when you're part of the koinonia, you share something with others and you share in something with others. You share life with one another in Christ Jesus at your Philippi. You share in something with one another and you share something with one another and oozes out into the environment where people take note of this gospel partnership and they're wondering how they can create a global village when everybody's in conflict with one another and then they see this incredible sense of koinonia. The sharing with and the sharing in with. Distinctives of life. And Paul's Paul's incarcerated. Rome. So he says in verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Here's your third motivator. You see, our gospel partnership motivates us to be faithful despite our circumstances. Because of our partnership in God's grace. Keeps you keeps you going. Keep on keeping on. Even when the externals seem to be so overwhelming in comparison to the internals. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce writes of the time at the World Congress of Evangelism, 1966, Berlin, Germany. Certain pastor from Africa appears on the scenes. A native of Central Africa has the obvious marks of stark paganism in his background. Face marked by heavy cuts, covered and colored in tattoo fashion by primitive dyes. People were scared when they would take a look at him and he'd be talking about Jesus. He spoke French as well as his tribal language and the man was leaning forward at the conference because he was listening carefully as two Alka Indians from Ecuador were giving their testimony. You see, one of them was involved in the killing of the five missionaries that we know of uh, that took place in the 1950s, Jim Elliott and the, and the group. 
and the other was a leader of the tribe. And they spoke only in their own dialect so that they needed a translator. And they spoke of God's grace and how they wanted to be able to penetrate the remaining portion of that region with the gospel. They wanted to take the good news downstream. That was their story. Dr. Boyce tells us that as they spoke, the African believer jumped from his seat in the back of the 1,200-seat auditorium, ran down the aisle, and threw his arms around them with tears streaming down his face. Why? He saw them not as those of another culture, not as those who spoke another language, not as those who lived 4,000 miles away. He saw them as partners. Partners. In the gospel of grace, Jesus Christ. You're mindful. You're thankful. Faithful. And when a Sue and a Janice are asked about their partnership and who is final say, they get vertical, you see, on the interviewer. And they point upward and say, God, He's the owner. We're simply the manager. Let's stand together. And that's our prayer. We're mindful of the workers and the work. We bring into this partnership a culture, a spirit, the spiritually mature discipline of thankfulness, not bitterness. The memories, the joyful prayer, the certainty that what you begin you complete grips our hearts. So, Father, we're seeking to be faithful, to honor you despite our circumstances, despite the challenges. So thank you, Lord, for being our God. Thank you for the one being in control. Thank you that even in our own case of spiritual or physical, medical, economic, whatever it is, confinement, you free us. You free us to be part of a partnership of the gospel, to be liberated people who bring a healthy spiritual climate into this partnership where you and you alone receive the praise. For this we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.